0: Um, I would like to first welcome you to the first session of this Terms London Aesthetics Forum. Um, before we begin, I would like to extend our thanks to the British Society of Aesthetics for sponsoring us, as well as the Institute of Philosophy here at Senate House for hosting us. And um, I would like to um, welcome Professor James Wilson um, from nearby UCL, um, who will be giving us an early um, view at a larger work on the aesthetics of ritual um, in this talk today titled Symbolism and Art. Thank you very much. Great. So thanks very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to be able to uh, share these thoughts with you um, today. So this, this is a kind of a wide-ranging and a rather sort of baggy talk, which I think eventually might turn into at least two, maybe three papers. But I hope that uh, what I I say will give us enough sort of food for thought and and discussion. So the paper's an attempt to make sense of the idea of symbolism and the symbolic. So the concept of symbol is used in loads of different contexts, from symbolic logic to religious symbolism and much in between. So etymologically, the word comes from the ancient Greek symbolon, meaning a token or a sign that can be used to, to gain entry or to certify. So if you read various of the, sort of the new comedies, either of Greece or of Rome, people like sort of Plautus or Menander, you'll notice that the plot often turns on a, a token in that sense, um, where for some reason, uh, a child gets separated from its parents, but they give it some kind of token, they rip a locket in two, and then at the end of the play, you're able to put the two things back together again. And, unless you're really quite Heideggerian, you might well be suspicious about the idea that somehow that, that initial uh, reading of symbol is going to tell us exactly what we need to know about everything that everybody's ever said about symbols since then. And that, indeed, the history of the symbol and how you know, all the different senses of symbol are connected to one another is a highly contested, though, interesting topic. So my particular interest is in a, is a, a quite specific sense of the symbol... That's as a kind of sign, whether a linguistic sign like a, a word or, a, or a, uh, an artefact or, or a picture, which has both a literal or a face connotation, and also has a further layer of meaning or connotation. So a symbol, in the sense I'm interested in, plays a double role. It's both, it's both the actual thing that it is, and also provides a way of bringing to presence some further thing that can't be properly expressed in other terms. So, for example, in Christianity, uh, the cross as worn or is displayed in a church is both a physical item but also um, a symbol and a reminder of, of you know, Christ's sacrifice and everything that goes with it. Or similarly, yeah. of a uh, November people often wear Poppies. So a poppy is a symbol of remembering. It's both a sort of physical piece of, kind of plastic or paper on your lapel, but also it stands for, for something else, and what that thing stands for has been elaborated through various remembrance rituals over, over the years. So, to say that A is a symbol for, for B is, more, is to say more than A stands in for or represents B. I think there are many cases where one thing stands in for or represent, represents another thing, but where it isn't a case of a symbol in the sense that I'm interested in. So if I'm trying to explain what happened to, in a fight, for example, I might say, well, you know, this, this was John and this was me and he came here. and then." Um, so we're using um, objects in the world to represent things. But the, that wouldn't be... Um, a symbol in, my, in the sense that I'm interested in, insofar as the objects are, are merely representing, they're not sort of also bringing to presence anything further. So symbols in the sense that I'm interested in are often held to be of absolutely central importance not only for art, for ritual, and that's kind of part of one, my broader project, but also for the nature of culture more broadly. So, Uh, I guess we're probably all aware that it's difficult to make sense of a lot of of medieval or Renaissance art without being able to understand some of the conventional symbols that you see depicted there. So the the periwinkle symbol of the Virgin Mary, or that a bird such as a a spoonbill might symbolise gluttony. I discovered one of the reasons why that is actually saw a spoonbill this this summer. And they have this this bill that they they sweep around, and it looks like they're incredibly greedy, but I think that's just the way they filter feed. But anyway, it became a symbol of gluttony if you you were like a a spoonbill. Or similarly, rotting fruit in a a still life might serve as a memento mori. So is this concept of the symbol which combines sort of both these literal connotations, also a deeper, deeper sense of meaning behind it. I think I take it it's it's sort of everywhere in contemporary culture. So it seems to be a, a mainstay of sort of much sort of artistic literary analysis, of psychoanalysis, Jungian psychology, and so on. And indeed you can see sort of inquiry into the nature and the workings of, of symbols. Uh, in a wide variety of academic disciplines, including anthropology, literary criticism, hermeneutics, theology, though, weirdly enough, hardly anybody says anything about symbols within analytic philosophy. That's one of the things that got me interested in the topic, so, why is it that so few philosophers have taken on this topic? So I want to sort of sketch a bit of background now about, well, where does the idea of the symbol come from? How does it get transformed? What could we do for it. That's sort of the project of, of today. So, I take it that the idea of the symbol has its origins in a kind of either neoplatonic or, or medieval set of understandings about sort of correspondences between meaningful signs and the broader world. Through though rather sort of different kind of metaphysical assumptions that are involved in, say, kind of uh, neoplatonism versus medieval Christianity, we see some important sort of commonalities about ideas of, sort of meaning and symbolism, so that the Neoplatonic emphasis on, on the one or, or geometry as a way of getting in contact with the way that things deeply are, or practices of augury, such as divining the future <coughs> through the flight of, of birds, or even particular ways of reading uh, sacred texts in, in Christianity, all share a belief that somehow surface and easily accessible signs whether those be geometric diagrams dispositions of organs in a sacrifice or the arrangements of words in a text can all provide access to ontologically an ontologically grounded layer of meaning behind this so the idea that people working with at the time was that there's some kind of symbolic order or some kind of set of symbolic relationships you know underlie a lot of what we see in the world, and these are able to be discovered by us. They aren't invented by us as human beings. <clears throat> so this way of thinking presupposes that elements of the world that we're apt to ascribe to purely naturalistic and mechanistic causes, in fact, have hidden meanings that can be uncovered by a skilled interpreter. So I think most of us in Western societies have pretty much lost this, the sense of what it would even mean to see the world in this kind of enchanted way. And that the idea that there were such hidden meanings was part of a great deal of what was lost during the scientific revolution and beyond. Well, exactly what the enchanted world was how we should make sense of It's a huge topic. Someone like Charles Taylor, I think, has written more and, and better on this than almost anyone else alive. And that Taylor argues that one central shift that we see in this process of disenchantment is a shift in the perceived location of of meaning. So we now tend to have the strong presumption that meaning is contained within human design structures, that the world itself is meaningless, but we somehow add meaning to it through interpretation. We tend to assume that the world affects us only by Presenting us with certain states of affairs which we react to from our own nature or bringing about some chemical condition in us which in virtue of the way we operate produces say euphoria or depression, Taylor says. As he continues, by contrast in the enchanted world the meaning is already there in the object or agent. It's there quite independently of us. It would be there even if we did not exist. And this means that the object or agent can communicate its meaning to us, impose it on us in a third way, by bringing us, as it were, into its field of force. It can, in this way, even impose quite alien meanings on us, ones that we would not normally have, given our nature, as well as, in positive cases, strengthening, strengthening, strengthening our endogenous good responses. So... Here are a couple of examples of how such ontological assumptions about art, you know, uh, art in the world that artists were living in, might be sort of embodied in well-known artwork. So here's um, Pisanello's you know, vision of Saint Eustace. It's a painting full of symbolism, which presupposes a world in which ontological uh, conceptions of symbolization are in operation. So the painting depicts how a Roman general, while out hunting, sees a stag with Christ on, on the cross between its antlers, then promptly converts to Christianity. Now, obviously, within the story and, and the world that the painting's depicting, the fact, the fact that so sort of, Christ appears within those antlers is not merely a, a fluke, but it's a meaningful communication. And looking more broadly, the stag is particularly ap- appropriate to... you know. Uh, Uh, as a vehicle for for Christ appearing as as Jesus was already identified with a stag within the iconology of the time. So clearly a world in which stags appear with crucifixes between their antlers and where this is correctly interpreted as a communication from God is a world in which things hang together in a rather different way from the world presupposed by modern science. Okay. So here's a second example. This is the scene in Macbeth after Macbeth has killed Duncan where Lennox describes the the storm that raged during the night. The night has been unruly. Where we lay, our chimneys were blown down, and as they say, lamentings heard in the air, strange screams of death and prophesy, and accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events now now hatched to the woeful time. The the obscure bird clamoured the livelong night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. Well, a world that expresses itself through the unnaturalness of... Sorry, the world that expresses the unnaturalness of regicide, through storms in which living creatures such as birds also pick up on the ethical enormity of the situation is, of course, quite different from um, the one in which we inhabit. So philosophers are fond of... Quoting Sellers' definition of philosophy is, quote, how things in the broadest possible sense of the term hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. Now, artworks, I guess, whether works of poetry, drama, painting or sculpture, typically presuppose a philosophy in this broad Sellersian sense. That is, in their construction and conventions, they embody a sense of how things in the broadest sense of the term hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. And I think they do so in two kinds of ways, which may blend into one another, but it's helpful to keep apart, conceptually. First, the first way they do that is through the, the presuppositions implicit in the work about what the common world outside the work, the artwork is, which both the audience and the, and the artist inhabit. I'll call this the real world. And second, through the structure and texture of the world of, of the work, they... So the real world and the world of the work may come apart to a greater or lesser extent and for different sorts of reasons. In the simplest kind of case, an artist aims to produce a, a realistic work. They depict a story that's, that's readily recognizable to the audience. You know, they depict the sort of thing that happens in the world that everybody knows about. In other sorts of cases, the real world and the world of the work may come apart very significantly. Think about, say, the fantasy genre, in which both the artist and the audience may know full well that there are no elves or no orcs, but nonetheless they they take pleasure in the presentation of of this as a a possibility to to contemplate and to think about. (coughs) So, in these simple examples, both the realistic work and the fantasy work differ in the degree of congruence between the real world and the world of the work. But they're Similar insofar as there's a broad agreement between the artist and the audience about whether the world of the work hangs together in the same way that the real world does. But when we attempt to appreciate and interpret sort of art from uh, made at a time of the enchanted world, you know, such as Pisanello or, or arguably Macbeth, what we see is a significant difference between what it's reasonable to assume is the artist's sense of how things hang together in the broadest possible sense of the the term and our sense of how things hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. So a world in which veridical visions occur and which regicide prompts a response from a wounded order of nature is one that we can make sense of only as a possible world quite distant from our own. While we can make believe that we're in an enchanted world for the purposes of engaging with with the work. It's not possible for us to entertain this as a genuine, live possibility, I suspect. Well, I think this raises an important question, which I can't fully discuss here, but what I might come back to later is, well, what if anything is lost if we treat a work that the author takes to be saying uh, something important in symbolic terms about reality as if it's a fiction, as if it's a, a game of make-believe. So, so what did the process of disenchantment <coughs> imply for symbols? Well, one obvious implication is the idea that meaning exists on an ontological level could no longer be presupposed. I think. It's worth pausing and sort of thinking through a little to see how radical this shift must be. So we've, we saw that the symbol stands for something beyond what it says or signifies on its surface. Now, this standing for relationship could be either conventional or non-conventional. And as we've noticed, a symbol uh, uh, could be non-conventional if what and how it symbolizes is not something that human beings have set up or could change. So the enchanted world made, gave us one kind of way in which symbols can have a non-conventional meaning, insofar as there's a meaning already in the world which we can read off from it. And I want to shortly uh, get on to talking about the, the romantic conception of the, of the symbol and the way in which you know, within the sort of uh, various sort of romantic writers attempted to Revive the idea of the symbol within a partly disenchanted world. But before we do that, I wanted to sort of point out an obvious possibility, which I take to be, as it were, the the correct one. Symbols can also be purely conventional. And a a symbol is conventional if it comes to convey the range of meanings that it does or the associations it does purely as a result of human practices. So when a symbol is conventional, there's a story to be told about when and how it came to be treated as a symbol. In many cases, we may lack the evidence to fully trace that story out in a way that gives us an uncontroversial and obvious result. But that insofar as we think that a symbol is conventional, we're committed to the idea that you know, at some point there must have been this process of... Whether ritualization or how something which was converted either from a mere sign or from something that didn't seem significant at all into something that came to have a wider symbolic meaning. And I think it's interesting if we trace out some you know, relatively recent historical cases of how this is done. So that uh, if you look at, say, the period shortly after the, after the First World War, you know, people were looking around for a symbol of, of remembrance, then uh, John McCrae's poem, In Flanders Field, sort of used the image of the poppy as a way of thinking about you know, loss or remembrance in, in war. Then 1921, you had the, the poppy appeal where, where it's used as, as a symbol of, of remembrance. You've seen the British Legion and others taken up. Since then, it becomes uh, embedded within a, a, bro- a, a wider set of rituals. So you can see a process by which, as it were, the poppy didn't really symbolise anything to remembrance, but over you know, a period of time through through ritual activity it comes to be quite deeply uh, resolute of of remembrance. So one important point to take away is that insofar as we think that that in a particular case the symbolization uh, relationship is conventional, we should expect that relationship to shift and to mutate over time, perhaps in response to interpretation or in response to its use in ritualised activity or perhaps just due to our kind of power relations within a society. Well, so if that's right, then insofar as we think of a particular case of, of symbolization as conventional, we should understand symbolization to be a contextual and a scalar quality rather than something that's fixed for all time. So the same kind of sign may have very different symbolic connotations you know, in one context rather than another. So think about the you know, the symbolic. Um, The use of rat and vermin symbolism. So we tend to sort of assume that there's a set of sort of symbolic associations around rats. So we think about sort of you know dirt, disease, treachery, you think about Jimmy Cagney, you dirty rat, or you think about sort of the use of sort of rat imagery within Nazi propaganda. Um, So but obviously this exists you know simultaneously with very different ways of symbolizing the rats. This is a picture of the, the Kani Mata, you know, <coughs> temple in India, where sort of, you know, it's sacred to the, to the, to the rats. Uh, you know, here's the, the rats being, the, the sacred rats being fed. So, we're now ready to move on to our discussion of the uh, symbol within Romanticism. So, this is, I think, Uh, by common agreement, Uh, in many respects uh, a development and a radicalisation of Kant's doctrine of aesthetic ideas and of the very brief discussion of the symbol in um, section 59 of the Critique of Judgment. So Kant defines an aesthetic ideal as, he says, a representation of the imagination that occasions much thinking without it being possible for any determinate thought, i.e. concept, to be adequate. As he continues... Thus, Jupiter's eagle with the lightning in its claws is an attribute of the powerful king of heaven, as is the peacock or the splendid queen of heaven. They do not, like logical attributes, represent what lies in our concept of a sublimity and majesty of creation, but something else which gives the imagination cause to spread itself over a multitude of related representations, which let one think more than one can express in a concept determined by words. So Kant's thought seems to be that when an artistic work has a theme such as death or envy, it's not possible for us to fully encompass this concept or theme, rather the richness and the indeterminateness of the presentation, which go beyond the conceptual, allow for a play of the imagination. And if we link this to Kant's distinction between determinate and reflective judgment, then we get to the idea that... Artworks allow us to grasp insights that have a universal validity, but whose universal validity is not based in concepts. And this is exactly the way that Goethe took it and which was central to the way that he theorised the symbol. As Goethe puts it, there's a great difference between whether a poet is looking for the particular that goes with the universal or sees the universal in the particular. The first gives rise to allegory, which the Romantics always thought was bad. So the first gives rise to allegory, where the particular only counts as an example, an illustration of the universal, but the latter, in in fact, constitutes the nature of poetry, expressing something particular without any thought of the universal and without indicating it. Now, whoever has this living grasp of the particular is at the same time in possession of the universal without realising, or else only realising it later on. So... The romantic symbol is really a sort of construction and elaboration between both artists, critics and philosophers, sometimes the same, same people fulfilling uh, you know, multiple of those roles at the same time. So uh, the kind of project, if you like, so to see contributions and elaborations from not only Goethe, from Coleridge, also from Navalis, uh, Schlegels and Shelley. This Romantic, this romantic approach to the symbol, I guess, can be seen as a, a kind of response to the disenchantment of the world. So it acknowledges that in the world as presented by science, you know, and in how finite nature appears to us through our outer senses, things are disenchanted. But nonetheless, it presupposes that behind all that, there must be some kind of deeper source of, of meaning that we can intuit through our inner senses. Here's... Uh, a couple of quotes I give you from Schlegel, which I think I mean give us a sort of sense of the radicalness of the of the doctrine and also how you might think it's perhaps even slightly uh, balmy or unusual or difficult to make sense of. As Schlegel puts it, the beautiful is a symbolic representation of the infinite. Stated in this way, it becomes clear at the same time how the infinite can appear in the in the finite. Often When philosophers say something clear, that's usually a a good sign that they're entirely unclear. But anyway, so stated in this way, it becomes clear at the same time how the infinite can appear in the finite. One should not consider the infinite a philosophical fiction. One should not look for it in the beyond. It surrounds us everywhere. We can never escape it. We live, breathe, and dwell in the infinite. The finite constitutes the surface of our nature. Otherwise, we would have no definite existence. The infinite constitutes the foundation, otherwise, we would have no reality at all. And the symbol is supposed to provide this answer to how do we mediate between the finite and the infinite? As Schlegel goes on to say, how then can the infinite be brought to the circus? How can it be made to appear? Only symbolically in images and signs. According to the unpoetic view, he says, Sense perception and the activity of the understanding determine things once and for all. The poetic view, on the other hand, continually interprets things and then sees a, frig- a figurative inexhaustibility in them. You know, poesy, taking in its broadest sense, is that which underlies all the arts. It's nothing <coughs> other than a perpetual symbolising. <coughs> Either we seek an outer shell for something spiritual, or we relate something external to an invisible inner reality. <coughs> now, if you're anyone like me, I, I think there's something kind of seductive and really interesting about what, he's, what appears to be trying to be said, but as soon as he's trying to sort of, uh, grab onto it, it becomes really kind of nebulous and really difficult to say, well, what's being said, is this even um, coherent? So, Whistler has a helpful, I think, reconstruction of what he takes to be the sort of core elements of it, and he argues there's basically three core elements to the romantic conception of the symbol. Um, so it's autonomous, um, synthetic, and tortagorical Now, each of these terms is used in quite an unusual way, so I'll sort of go through and how we might think about them, because I, I doubt that probably you know, that many of us have sort of uh, well, well, many of you may not have been aware of these terms. So I'll, I'll try and unpack them. Now, to say that the symbol is autonomous is to say that it's self-presenting, as Whistler puts it. The symbol is an image which we need not look outside itself for meaning. Unlike the, sim- the sign or the allegory, its referent is not external to it. Well, I take it that is quite a puzzling thing to say, and I think it's best to try and understand what's being said by reference to things that are not, he autonomous, so that we can come back and compare it. So I guess we're used to the, to the relationship between the, the, the sign and what it signifies being arbitrary. That's to say there's, we assume that there's nothing about the particular signs we use within language that make them fitting to capture particular meaning. So that, you know, if I say a sentence like the cat is on the on the mat, the fact that the word cat refers to a particular natural kind is entirely arbitrary. And we, as we can see that, you know, in, in other languages, in German, you might say die Katze. In you know, other, other languages, we use different words again. And so that, insofar as the meaning of the signs is, is arbitrary. Clearly, we can't actually determine what the meaning of, the, of, the, of a sentence is without getting any external supporting evidence. So that one good sign of this is, you know, if you find a sort of uh, an inscription in a lost language, if you're an archaeologist, you often find it's entirely impossible to decipher what's being said unless you can find some external key to it, like the Rosetta Stone, for example. And similarly... Even if we consider some of the some things that are definitely symbols rather than mere signs, we're often familiar, also familiar with the case that there may be. Cases where we need external support to understand what the symbol symbolising. So you might see that you know, one day in Parliament you see that all the all the, all the politicians are wearing a little yellow daffodil thing. Well, what on earth does that mean? You you Google it and you discover oh it's it's a it's a campaign being run by Marie Curie about uh, support for, for people with who are terminally ill. So there's where the, there's a symbol which you know which you couldn't really guess merely from the fact that, that a, a daffodil was being used. What the what the meaning was. So, that's how we tend to assume uh, language works, or maybe even how many of the symbols we're, we're familiar with work. But that's not how the romantic conception of the symbol, you know, wants us to think about things. So, they do argue that the, that the meaning is fully hey, autonomous. That's to say, the meaning is available merely by engaging it with it in the right way, without, within, without us needing to be told what the symbol means. So I take it this is actually a pretty puzzling idea, and it requires us to think about the relationship between meaning and nature in a rather different way from what we're inclined to. So Schlegel again gives us a kind of, I think a sort of uh, a clear steer on what the romantics took to be its metaphysical implications. He says, for, for everything re- represents first and foremost itself. That is, it reveals its inside through its outside, its essence through its appearance. It is thus a symbol for itself. Subsequently, it reveals that to which it is closely related and by which it is influenced. And finally, it is a mirror of the universe. Now, I guess this is fairly obviously not entirely easy to square with the world as we, as we take it to, to be. Now, the second element built into this sort of romantic conception of uh, the symbol is tautigory, or that it's tautigorical. That is to say, as as Whistler puts it, the, the symbol does not refer to a referent outside itself. It participates in and so shares its being with the referent. The symbol presents itself and does not refer to anything outside itself. Now, again, this is a kind of really unusual idea which we might struggle to. Uh, understand so that I guess we have to see that it's a much more radical idea than, than we get that, you know so we're used to in sort of uh, some words of languages in language we're aware that there were maybe words like sort of you know meow or bang where where the the signifier uh, has some kind of significant relationship to what's uh, it signifies. but. This is going far beyond that, not just to say that there's some kind of natural relationship here, but somehow the, the symbol is what it symbolises, as if somehow you know, a sign is pointing to itself and, and there's nothing more to it. Now, I think it's not entirely easy to make sense of this on account of, of linguistic meaning, but I think one possible resource that may be familiar to which, which we could provide as a partial way of understanding with this would be uh, Nelson Goodman's account of exemplification. <coughs> so that if you remember from uh, the way he talks about exemplification in, in languages of art and ways of world-making, he, he, he uses an example something like a, a carpet sample where you, you get sent it through the, through the post. And as it were, it both as a way of referring to the kind of carpet that you could buy, what's in the catalogue, but it's also, as it were, itself an instance of that kind of carpet so that provides a sort of example how something can, as it were, both, both be itself and stand for it, stand for something beyond itself which is somehow like itself. But that Goodman insists that, the, that a case like the kind of carpet sample, is, uh, it's only, uh, it only symbolises some particular elements of, of the carpet, so, so that, as it were, it, it symbolises the... or, or brings to presence... Uh, 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 the colour, the weave and so on, but not obviously its size and its shape. But the, the Romantic symbol goes far beyond this idea of exemplification. This is because... And the third sort of uh, idea is its syntheticism. So as we've already seen in the, in the quotations I, I gave you from Schlegel, uh, the Romantic symbol is somehow posited to, to contain a, a unity of or a plurality of opposites that somehow mediates between it. So, you know, as as Whistler puts it, the symbol unifies the real, particular, and concrete symbolic image and the ideal, universal, and abstract meaning which that image evokes. It is this basic synthesis of empirical being and intellectual meaning which describes most fully the reconciliation the symbol performs. Okay, so what are we to make of the romantic Symbol. So, as I sort of noted at the beginning, the romantic symbol involves a significant radicalization of certain ideas that were already implicit in Kant's uh, account of aesthetic ideas. The proto symbol in Kant is sort of radicalized by making symbols self presenting, so not requiring any external support to interpret them. And by making the unity of opposites distinctive of symbols, so that the symbol is somehow both concrete and abstract at the same time, both finite and, and infinite. And it's radicalising that somehow requiring that symbols are able to partake in what it is that they symbolise. Now, you might well have your doubts about how plausible or even how, co- how coherent this conception of the symbol is, And I might partly share your worries there, but I think it's important to notice how much uh, romantic poetry, and maybe even how much art post-romantic is uh, inspired by similar kinds of ideas. So that uh, a lot of romantic uh, poetry and art, I take it does start from the artist's experience of some kind of felt presence of the infinite that lies behind the everyday whether that infinite is taken to be God or nature. So just to pick an example almost at random, here's a, a, you know, a famous uh, part of um, Wordsworth's preludes. You know, a meditation rose in me that night upon the lonely mountain when the scene had passed away. And it appeared to me the perfect image of a mighty mind, of one that feeds upon infinity, that is exalted by an underpresence, the sense of God, or whatsoever is dim or vast in its own being, as if the idea that somehow we can sense God's presence in the world, or whether God or, or nature, is there some kind of spiritual uh, uh, nature to the world which underpins it. Uh, now, in a way, we're back to the same kind of question or challenge that we faced with the enchanted world. That, as it were, it's clear that, as it were, uh, someone like Wordsworth genuinely. Believes this. And insofar as we want to sort of uh, make sense of the work to appreciate it, do we need to put ourselves in the, in the same headspace? Is it, is it enough to say, well, you know, he had these odd metaphysical ideas about symbols and let's, as it were, for the sake of argument, make, make believe they're true in order to interpret the work? Is, is that enough? Or is there something that we miss by sort of not partaking of the, of the deep sort of understanding of the metaphysical nature of the, of the world that the work presupposes? Okay, so I want to now in, introduce a couple of problems for the Romantic symbol. These are probably not supposed to be exhaustive, before making some, some suggestions about how we might use some, some kind of um, uh, descendant of the Romantic symbol to help us think about art and aesthetics more generally. Well, The first thing to notice is that there's sort of odd tension at the heart of the vision of the romantic symbol. On the one hand, it seems to rest on the self-presenting nature of the world. The infinite is revealed through the particular. But on the other hand, the nature of what's symbolised doesn't really appear to be legible. I guess it's a paradox that, in a positive sense, someone like uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, explores in his poem God's grandeur, you know, as he puts it, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. But why do men then now not wreck his rod? Why is it that you know, people don't notice God? But that we could also view that in a rather sort of more negative way. We might sort of draw the conclusion that there's actually something rather fishy about the very idea of hay autonomous symbols, if nobody is in fact able to read them or, de- or decode what it is that they say. As, as Helmi puts it in his genealogy of the uh, romantic symbol, he says, quote, It's quite a long quote, but it was worth reading. And what was peculiar to the age of Goethe was certainly not its assumption of nature's meaningfulness to humanity, but rather its inability to secure any actual meaning from a purportedly infinite store of potential meaning. One way in which this peculiarity manifested itself was the emphasis on the mysteriousness of the language in which the book of nature was written. This insistence on nature's illegibility is all the more remarkable in following, by almost two centuries, Galileo's categorical assertion of the opposite. So, the second thing, as I've suggested, that we can distinguish between conventional and non-conventional (coughs) symbols. There seems little reason to think that acting as a symbol in the sense that, that you know, Kant introduces requires that somehow the, the symbol is fully he autonomous and, you know, and is also tortagorical. We can imagine partially hay autonomous symbols, for example, so, so that a symbol could be partially he autonomous if it provides some but not total ability to re- interpret it on the basis of perceiving it. So an example of a Possibly a, a partially <laughs> autonomous symbol might be a symbol like the Ouroboros, what's the, the snake eating its own tail, which those like sort of Jung and others wrote a lot about it, its, its symbolic meaning. So that it seems to uh, occur in, in lots of different uh, societies in different contexts, often meaning something to do with uh, uh, renewal or, or, or recursion or a circle of, of nature. And I've also already suggested there seem to be some, some symbols that are not hey-autonomous at all. There may, may be genuine symbols that are entirely conventional in, in how they symbolise, but which nonetheless are, are genuine symbols. So I guess think, for example, of the way a, you know, something like the US flag appears to a patriot... I take it that it operates as a symbol of the, of the country and very much more. But at the same time, you know, flanks are entirely <coughs> arbitrary. The, the, the nation, you know, is only two or 300 years old. So it just seems a, a mistake to, as it were, make the assumption that in order for something to be a, a symbol at all, it needs to be autonomous. And given that, we might think, well, is the idea of the autonomy of the symbol really adding anything? Is it, is it helpful to us if it turns out when we try to unpack what the sort of the, the natural meaning or the meaning that was already there in nature is, we, we find uh, ourselves defeated by it. So rather perhaps what we need is a, as a, some kind of hermeneutics of symbols, some, some ability to interpret what symbols mean. So Paul Ricoeur argues that we should move on from the romantic conception of, of the symbol by thinking of symbols as a bit more similar to conventional signs. So that on Recur's view, all symbols are a kind of sign. They're expressions that communicate a meaning. However, not all signs are symbols. Every sign that aims at something beyond itself and stands for itself, but not every sign is a symbol where something is merely a sign and not also a symbol. It's conventionally (coughs) assigned meaning, just exhausts its meaning. But the symbols, as he puts it, have a double intentionality. That's to say, in order for something to function as a symbol, it needs both operators as as a sign and also to have a further level of meaning. Now, I think one thing that's interesting about Recur's account is that Recur makes the opacity and the mysteriousness Uh, Of symbols, a key feature of them, rather than something that, as on the romantic account, would appear to be something that needs to be explained away. So, according to recur, symbols operate analogically, but they do so in a more obscure way than standard analogies. So, in an ordinary analogy, we use one thing uh, as a model to understand another. So, we think of the For example, we think of the nation's finances as like a a household budget, and so we think of the budget deficit as like a current account overdraft. Now, in a standard analogy, we have enough of a separate understanding of the source and the target of the the analogy to be able to assess whether the analogy is apt or informative. But Ricard argues that what's distinctive of symbols is that we lack a separate way of getting at an understanding of the thing symbolised. Now, I think it's important to notice that it's not an objection to what recurs, suggesting that to say that, well, there are clear cases. So that, for example, you can read um, Orwell's Animal Farm as an allegory about the Russian Revolution without feeling that there are sort of deep, unplumbed depths that are somehow beyond beyond us or or that elude us. But Recur would say that, well, that's just to say that Animal Farm is an allegory rather than a work that's symbolic in his sense. In an allegory, the, the, the latent meaning can be somehow be grasped separately from the, from the symbol. As he puts it, there is a relation of, relation of translation between the two meanings once the translation is made. The henceforth useful, useless analogy, so allegory can be dropped. So that's to say, well, we can use Animal Farm to help us grasp the points that Orwell was trying to make about the Russian Russian Revolution. But once we grasp those points about the Russian Revolution, we don't need to keep going back to the allegory to learn more about the Russian Revolution. The case of the symbol, he argues, is different. As he puts it, the symbol does not conceal any hidden teaching that only needs to be unmasked for the images in which it is masked to become useless. So, I hope that by this stage... I've said almost enough to make you think that this that this post-romantic conception of, of the symbol that we get in recur, and as, as I'll shortly explore in Charles Taylor too, is coherent. Of course, there's lots of concepts that are coherent but aren't necessarily very useful for thinking about philosophy or aesthetics. So, what is it that this potentially reformed conception of the symbol might be useful for? Now, I became interested in the sort of the idea of symbolism and art and particularly the the romantic and the post romantic conceptions of it because it seems to provide a a way, maybe the best way that I've seen so far, of of shedding light on what I take to be a distinctive kind of experience that we have uh, engaging with serious deep art. This is the idea that we have that there's there's something that the work allows us to, to see by experiencing it. But whatever it is that the work allows us to see always remains somewhat beyond the boundaries of our abilities to express it and to articulate it properly. So the work points to something further, but what it is that it says or makes available about this thing is never fully articulated and hence remains somewhat enigmatic. So Ricœur begins his account of the symbol uh, because he's interested in, to understand more about the way that evil has been understood within Christianity. So he focuses on themes and myths that recur in various different sorts of ways, all of which attempt to make sense of, well, how does evil get into the world in the, in the first place? How does it come to seem that sort of making an evil choice comes to seem better than a, a good one? So, so, Ricard's thought is that when things are genuinely puzzling and, and that it was the kind of thing that, that serves as a theme for a important artwork, just by their nature, they tend to be sort of uh, heavily uh, symbolised and we tend to only get access to them via the symbol. And so here's, for example, what he says about the idea of defilement, which he takes to be a sort of a, a core cool <coughs> way in which we... Experience evil. He says, well, the literal meaning of defilement is stain, but this literal meaning is already a conventional sign. The words stain, unclean, etc. do not resemble the thing signified. But upon this first intentionality, there is erected a second intentionality, which, through the physically unclean, points to a certain situation of man in the sacred, and which is precisely that of being defiled, impure. literal and manifest sense then points beyond itself as something that is like a stay or a spot contrary to perfectly transparent signs which only say what what they want to say and positing that which they signify symbolic signs are opaque because the first literal meaning literal obvious meaning itself points analogically to a second meaning which is not given otherwise than in it the opacity constitutes the depth of symbols which it will be said is inexhaustible so what Ricoeur is trying to tell us, I think, is that part of what makes something I'd like, say kind of soiling or defilement a symbol for for sin or for <coughs> evil is that we don't have a we just don't have a language for thinking about uh, you know, sin and evil that doesn't rely on these kinds of images. As as Taylor puts it, we or the people of the relevant you know. We, or the people of the relevant culture, only have this language for moral defilement which follows on wrongdoing by describing and articulating an extra level of meaning analogous to it, but beyond ordinary soiling. Dirt is our route of access to this semantic domain. And what's, I think, both sort of interesting and important about Taylor's work is that he aims to provide a genealogy of some of the symbols that are most ubiquitous and, and central to our ethical lives. So he argues that since the Romantic period, our lives have become suffused with metaphors and symbolism around depth, inwardness, and authenticity. So he puts it, we speak of a a deep question, a deep matter. We speak of depth psychology. Somebody says that way deep down inside, he really loves her, or he believes in God, or he agrees with Nietzsche. In a final moment of struggle, somebody reaches deep down inside himself to make a supreme effort. Deep here contrasts with superficial, he says. The superficial is that which doesn't engage us very deeply. If I struggle to stay clear of this master metaphor, I can say it doesn't engage our whole being. Consistent with this image, the superficial is what may easily hide what lies beneath in the depths of our being. If you're just living on the surface, you're never really aware of what lies hidden there. You're not a very deep person. In fact, you're shallow. So one reason I wanted to start with the enchanted world is that one of the main themes of, of Taylor's work from Sources of the Self onwards is that while this symbolism around depth and authenticity now seems second nature to us, and he indeed he, he suggests that it would be next to impossible for the kind of being that we've become in Western civilization to do without this language, he argues that this was not always the case. As He argues that... This kind of conception of ourselves as beings with hidden depths only takes shape within the Romantic period. And that it doesn't have obvious equivalents in the world before this. And that he further argues, or maybe it's a corollary of his, his view, that this lack of historical awareness makes it more difficult for us to see and to notice the kind of uh, ways in which uh, these, this depth symbolism is a symbolic language. Rather, we just take it often to describe the, uh, the world the way, the way it is, rather than, as would we'll be more accurate, playing a constitutive role in making it possible for us to have a certain kind of life. So I wanted to take stock of where we've got to so far. So we've seen that symbols have a double intentionality, in that they have a first or a surface meaning that intimates a second meaning. But this second meaning is not exhausted by the first meaning, nor is it accessible or explicable except in symbolic terms. So we've examined the romantic conception of the symbol, which makes symbolization a feature of the, the world. It's the world itself that's legible by tracing out the ways that the surface signs reveal the working of the infinite that lies behind this. So in the last two sections, I've attempted to write a mildly deflationary view of what we should take forward from the Romantic symbol. On this view, it's no longer the case that basically all things that symbolise, symbolise the same thing, the the infinite. It's no longer the case that all symbols need to be heautonomous autonomous or tortigorical. Rather, symbols such as those connected to depth or defilement, they can be deep, they can take us to the the heart of, of what we take to be important about human life and how we live it but nonetheless constructed over, over time and to have a, a history. So I've suggested that following Charles Taylor, it makes most sense to s- see symbols as, and symbolisation not as a metaphysical feature of the world that exists quite apart from us, but rather as a kind of expressive medium that's constituted th- uh, through human creativity and which by... Being so constituted and constantly extended makes possible new forms of articulacy, and through this, different ways of being human. So, I think I might um, stop at that point. I had another section to give, but I think I shall I shall stop at that point And you know, but with the idea that uh, the symbol gives us, uh, as extended, makes possible new forms of articulacy, and through this, different ways of, of being human. So, so thank you.